Podo. Welcome to the Ned Ludd Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. You've got mail. Before we start today, just a quick note to say that I was intending, as usual, to get this episode out this morning, first thing. And then I had this sort of very disempowering experience of having my Apple Watch stolen on the train into town and then watching kind of powerless on my phone as I could see it traveling its way across London. I sort of chased for a little bit thinking I was going to do some sort of sort of vigilanteism. Uh, and I eventually gave up and just kind of watched it, but it threw my whole schedule out of whack. So this is why this episode is coming out a little bit later than I intended it to come out. Anyway, on with the show. A few months ago, in astonishment at the ever-increasing prices of takeaway coffee here in London, I set out on a simple mission. I wanted to find somewhere in the capital that still served a one-pound coffee. This didn't seem, at the time, like an especially delusional ambition. After all, what is coffee? Ground beans strained through hot water, essentially. I wasn't talking about the fancy stuff, the lattes or cappuccinos or oat milk chai flat whites dusted with turmeric and regret. I was talking about the simple stuff. Espresso, filter coffee, Americano. Bean meets water. In London, the price of coffee with foamed milk accompaniment has now broken the seal, the sacred seal, and crossed the threshold of £4 in certain places. Not everywhere, but in nice places. The absurdity of this is untampered by the fact that £3 is now a normal price for a to-go black coffee. I live in South London, near the point where the city proper meets suburbia, and the prices of coffee are noticeably cheaper. An Americano near me might be £2.50 rather than £3. But it's all still crazy to my untrained eye. Anyway, I set off on this deeply boring middle-aged man adventure, just delaying the inevitable descent into owning model train sets. A few months ago, with the ambition of finding somewhere that still thinks that a quid is an acceptable price. There were plenty of places that offered some sort of subsidised price, you know, hospital canteens, so the coffee there is often awful and breaks my rule against it being instant coffee, or the Houses of Parliament. But even in these places, the price would still be well above the pound. This took me to McDonald's, where a coffee is notionally 99p, except that it's actually 20p more expensive than that at my nearest McDonald's, which happens to be inside a train station and therefore subject to slightly strange market pressures. But anyway... I didn't feel much accomplishment at the discovery that you could still get a 99p coffee from a McDonald's in Croydon. That wasn't the true purpose of the task, because really, who goes to McDonald's for the coffee? Which is when I came upon an unlikely venue in Soho, which, in coffee terms, is one of the priciest places in the city. It's called Algerian Coffee Stores, and it is primarily a vendor of ground and unground coffee beans. It is essentially a shop, a coffee shop, but not a hot coffee shop. But it also has a little coffee store inside where the prices were good. On March 7th, when I first visited, the menu was simple and the prices were as follows. Espresso, double or single, and Americano, £1. Latte Cappuccino Flat White, £1.50. So I had done it. I had found somewhere in central London that served good coffee at a reasonable price. 
The fact that their business model relied heavily upon seducing customers into buying some of the far less good value banked coffee didn't really bother me. I could still pop in, hand over a shiny £1 coin, with the king's head on it soon, and receive a steaming cup of coffee. Just two months later, though, on May the 5th, I returned to find a notice apologising for price rises. Espresso and Americano were now a quid fifty, while the milk melange drinks were all £2. Due to increased costs, the notice announced, we have had to increase our drinks prices. We ask that you are not rude to our lovely staff regarding the increases. I bit my tongue mid-insult. After all, these are still the best prices in London, really. But it spoke to a truth that has been self-evident in the years since COVID-19, and particularly since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Supply lines that have felt unbreakable, unshakable even, have suddenly come under real pressure. What do you need in order to make a cup of coffee? You need the beans first. The biggest exporters of coffee beans in the world are Brazil, Vietnam, Colombia, Indonesia, Honduras, Ethiopia, India, Uganda, Mexico, and Guatemala. If there is a theme among them, it's that they are very far from our temperate climes here in Europe, and in the large part, relatively far from other Western markets. So this necessitates immediately cross-continental transport of these precious little nuggets. But of course, I could go into any supermarket and buy a bag of coffee beans for £3, and that bag would make 20 or 30 cups. And that's not even wholesale pricing. The reality is that the cost of doing business in the real world is just frighteningly expensive. Staff costs, rent, taxes, energy prices, these are all the things that coffee shops, from independent outlets in Soho to the biggest chains in the world, have to grapple with. It is a tangle of costs mixed with the complexity of the chain. Which all raises the question of why I persist with the financial self-penalty of buying this extremely expensive coffee. When I mentioned this week's episode to Ned, they wrote back asking, first of all, whether it was sufficiently linked to technology. I said it was, of course. You know, technology has made us naive to the difficulties of building real-world products. I can get Dali to draw me a picture of a cup of coffee in a second, but when will AI make me a steaming mug of joe? So this is what they wrote back. A downside risk of technological dependence is mental bifurcation from the reality of manufacturing. Everyone uses computers. Few could build a computer. Fewer still could mine or smelt or polymerize these elements required to build even the shell of the intended product. The impact is starting to be seen. Devices, good devices, are becoming scarcer. The wait time's longer. Software runs on a pace. Hardware remains subject to the turbulent conditions of a fractured marketplace. They're not wrong, at least in my experience. I waited the best part of two years before I could get hold of a PS5, which seemed like a huge market failure. But Sony are hardly the only company to be experiencing these supply chain difficulties, with Apple and Tesla and other companies reliant on China increasingly nervous. And then there are those mystical things, the rare earth minerals that sound like they've come from Minecraft or something. They're apparently vital for things like chips and batteries, the objects that will power the next hundred years. Anyway, my guest today made a chicken sandwich. It took him six months and cost him $1,500. Now, this wouldn't usually be cause for inviting someone onto a podcast to talk about globalisation. But Andy George is no ordinary maker of chicken sandwiches. He runs a YouTube channel called How to Make Everything, which, at time of writing, has 1.74 million subscribers. Andy's premise is simple. He makes everything. 
but he makes it from scratch. He procures everything straight from the source and then works backwards to try and turn it into a viable product. The sort of products we become used to buying in every supermarket in the country. His most successful videos involve making chocolate, an American football, a root beer float and a pair of glasses. His story about making a chicken sandwich, which was my point of entry to his world, has over 6 million views and went viral again recently on Twitter. Part of its appeal is, I think, a demonstration of how hard life has been for most of humanity's existence and how much we've come to take for granted the conveniences afforded to us here in the modern age. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation with Andy, which I hope gets you thinking about some of these questions about supply chains and our globalised world, and also makes you marvel with renewed appreciation for the miracle that is human evolution. There's not a monkey in the world that can make a chicken sandwich, let alone create a mass market version for consumption by a thousand hungry commuters every day. But humans have taken it in their stride. Anyway, here's Andy. I'm in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's uh, about 11 a.m. Okay, so you're somewhat behind us here in London. You've got the whole day ahead of you. You're the creator of kind of a a hit YouTube channel, How to Make Everything, which basically is about your journeys in reverse engineering everyday products or things that we take for granted in the modern world and kind of getting back to the basic principles of production. How did you get started on this? It's quite the journey. Yeah, uh, I guess I was just started out being curious about where everything that we use every day comes from. Um, For me, it started with food. And at the time I was really getting into like cooking and kind of starting to realize like you can make stuff, you make a dish from scratch, but like pretty much nobody's like going out and growing their own wheat and grinding it up. And just kind of realizing there's all these steps, like you don't really think about every day. And um, it made me wonder like what, what would happen if, you actually did every single step from plant to an animal to your meal. And um, well, brainstorming ideas, I found that like the, the sandwich is an odd kind of modern uh, invention of something that is surprisingly complex, but so simple to make because it has so many different things in it um, that it's, I, I doubt they were making sandwiches back in prehistoric times. Um, and I just kind of discovered there's so many, steps you don't think about and going on that process and explored it. And uh, it was a really fascinating journey. And after I finished the sandwich, I realized I could could apply that to basically anything in everyday life and realized like there's so much I don't know. Uh, So I just kind of started exploring everything. So it started, the chicken sandwich was was the original concept. And were you thinking this is going to not only be like an interesting examination of our, our reliance on you know uh, supermarkets to sell us flour rather than going out and milling wheat or whatever but were you also thinking this is going to make a really interesting youtube video were you thinking about it as a sort of like social media phenomenon at that time or were you just purely focused on like the task at hand well not really for social media i guess but i was um i did go to school for filmmaking and had wanted to get into documentary filmmaking at the time i was just doing like advertisements like the stuff people you press skip on. Um, so I wanted to make something people wanted to watch. Uh, so my goal was to do some sort of project that get me into the documentary filmmaking arena. I didn't even want to be on camera at first. I just couldn't find anybody else who uh, was willing to do all of this work. <laughs> so I actually made it as a intended to just a short film documentary um, and then ended up going through a process, tried to pitch it for TV and ended up filming a few episodes 
to, to try and make it as a TV show to show like how it would be done and then go anywhere and then kind of reluctantly put it on YouTube where it ended up finding its audience. Right, right. And it's fair to say the chicken sandwich went viral. I mean, I, I was I saw it a few a few weeks ago. It was being shared on Twitter and it was going absolutely like gangbusters. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is genius. And then I realized it was, you know, seven years old. This has been around for ages. So it's had a huge shelf life. It keeps finding new new fans. Can you talk people through the, the basics of the process and basically how difficult is it to make a chicken sandwich from scratch? Uh, yeah. So my, kind of my the rules were that I, I can't can't buy any of the ingredients and I have to like source them as they're available in nature. So basically there's, there's things you don't expect to be as difficult as they are. I think the one that was the most surprising was salt. Mm. I was going to try and make my own pickles because it's a crucial ingredient for a sandwich. Um, and like I lived in Minnesota, which is in the middle of a continent. There's not really a source of salt water or salt mines or anything. So uh, I ended up having to fly out to the coast rent a boat, go out, fill a jug, boil it down, get some salt, figure out how to explain that to TSA as I went through security, my bag of white powder, uh, and then use that in it. Um, so that was probably like the most expensive and complicated small ingredient that you don't really think about. Um, but beyond that, I was just having to grow everything and then do the processing and then uh, processes you don't really think about, like how, how do you make cheese out of milk? Um, and uh, all of that, it was... Very eye-opening. Were you just, throughout this, were you just single-minded thinking, this is going to make a really good short documentary? Were you at times thinking, why am I doing this? This is way more complicated than I than I had wanted. Or, or was it just that every new complication made the story more compelling? I was very uncertain about how it was going to turn out. And I think I described the project to a lot of people and they're like, okay. And like, they didn't really get it until I, like, I had a final final video. And like, oh, Uh and um, so it did seem like a little bit of like just going down my own rabbit hole of insanity of, yeah, I'm going to fly to L.A. to get some salts that you could just buy at a store for a few cents. And I don't know. I think it was just once I committed to it, I was like, I'm going to see this through and whatever happens with it happens. And then there's this moment at the end of the video where you bite into the sandwich and you, you know, eat it for the first time. And you say, I think you say, yeah, it's fine. Was that? bathos that sort of anticlimactic ending was that what you were expecting were you sort of aware going through it that maybe the sandwich wasn't going to be stunning <laughs> uh i think kind of the original idea or curiosity was like it, it, homemade cooking is always better like what if you went all the way like it should be even greater um it should be like the best sandwich ever made uh so that was my initial thought i think by the end like everything was kind of felt like it was falling apart like the vegetables i pick were starting to rot my wheat was just dr not quite dry enough so i didn't even know if it was ready to be ground and uh i was like i don't know if i'm gonna get a sandwich out of this after all this work uh so then i at that point i was just like happy to have something like i had something to look like a sandwich and was at least edible so at that point i was satisfied to just reach something but um i think along the way i realized that i'm not doing this like as a a seasoned professional would like this isn't quite going to be the best sandwich ever so then you released the chicken sandwich video and out on youtube and it kind of went out into the world and did you realize quite quickly that there was a tribe on the internet of people who were very interested in this sort of idea for whom it it scratched some sort of intellectual itch to see someone doing this sort of back to basics 
engineering projects of like everyday items how quickly did it emerge that there was a real audience for this i think early on when i started like whenever i told people about it i, I kept running into people who are like oh yeah i had an idea similar to that um so i was kind of had an inkling that like this is kind of something not, some people are interested in there's probably some sort of audience but it wasn't until it went viral that i realized there's a lot of people who find this at least curious enough to click on um so that's that was very affirming i think to just discover how wide of an audience i could find and do you have a sense of where the audience was coming from? Was it, you know, was it coming from the artist formerly known as Twitter? Or was it, you know, was it a Reddit phenomenon? Do you know where the kind of the biggest social media push was coming from? Yeah, it was definitely Reddit because that's where I, I actually posted it myself uh, just on a whim. And that's that was what gave it the initial traction. But I remember watching it that day and there's like it taking off and then like just kind of spreading everywhere and other websites posting it and a fun phenomenon to watch. Right. And when you launched Chicken Sandwich, did you have the difficult second album? Was that already done? Did you have a another video ready to go? Or did you have to then think, okay, this one's worked. What else is going to work? So like I said, I, mean, I had kind of tried to make this a, a TV show before. So I had like a whole, like, I think it was eight episode season we had made. Um, some other people helped me. And uh, so then we had other content. The challenge was that the content's not easy to produce. Like the sandwich took over six months. Then like I did the the suit and that took uh, over a year, I think. And um, so I had some initial content, but then the challenge has always been like, how do you keep producing? Because YouTube is like, you're supposed to keep producing content to have like a a real career there. Um, So that's uh, honestly still trying to figure that out of like how how to do projects that take multiple months and produce content that's weekly or bi-weekly or whatever mm-hmm. and of all the things you've done over the years now what's been your personal favorite and maybe what's been the the hardest the most like exhausting process my usual go-to for my favorite project was chocolate and i think that just like hit the, like the right combination of like uh, a process i've never really thought about before i took it on and something that was just delicious the entire way through because before that I didn't know that like it, it's a fruit that grows on a tree and there's just a whole fermenting process and drying and uh, all these steps that never knew about. I just like, I just eat chocolate and, and uh, yeah, so that was fascinating and delicious in the end. Um, I think my most challenging I recently revisited was, uh, is I was doing a larger project of trying to make my own camera from scratch. And um, one of the, big first steps of that was making a camera lens and grinding well first making optically clear glass which has been like a a multi-year process of figuring out how to make glass that actually turns out clear because making glass is kind of simple making it actually clear that you can make lenses and stuff out of is very difficult uh as i found um but then uh grinding it to the right amount and getting a, a quality result has been a challenge that I'm still working out some of the the flaws in. Were you always like this? Were you always someone who was good with their hands, very practical? Were you always someone who wanted to experiment and build stuff? I mean, or is this something you've learned through the process of making your show? Uh, that's something I had like in me from the beginning, I guess, to some extent of like, I always like to, to build things and tinker and was obsessed with Legos and connects growing up. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely been kind of a, a rabbit hole of, of, digging deeper into that aspect of myself and um, taking on projects that I never would have even considered doing before I started the series. And when we think about the the way that those 
videos have gone viral and the community of people you know whether it's on reddit or elsewhere who've who've really engaged with with the show that you're making what do you think the resonance is is this just something that people see as a sort of fascinating oh look interesting that's how that's how that's done look how difficult it is do people enjoy seeing your your the sweat and blood sweat and tears or or do you think there is also an element of kind of psychological desire to kind of better understand the world that we live in i don't know i think probably both i i just enjoy the process of kind of tackling a new topic every time because there's always aspects you don't think about or understand so my personal enjoyment is always with uh covering a new area that i don't know Mm. learning it hands-on and do people do you get like artisans in various industries contacting you to be like to say all of these skills that have seemingly been lost over the, over the years and have been replaced by all this machinized and sort of consumer capitalism at its most global do you get people contacting you being like you know you're a great showcase for how stuff can be actually made from scratch or or, or, or is it just a sort of curiosity thing I mean, it's it's on YouTube. So a lot of the people who contact me who are, have experience in that are telling me everything I did wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, but along the way, I try to like reach out to experts in the different fields and talk to them. And it's always fascinating um, to hear like what they're passionate about and like this these kind of lost arts that most people aren't really doing too much today. But there's mm. usually somebody who's still keeping it alive it's always really fascinating to to tap their mind so do you feel like ultimately for you this is a project that that it feels like to me to me from our conversation it is mainly about you know what it's really interesting it makes an interesting tv show it's good entertainment but do you think there is a sense that maybe people have lost touch with how complicated everyday devices are how many different supply chains are involved in even you know even a chicken sandwich involves so many different supply chains so many different industries working in tandem and i think we then see you know supply shocks like the covid pandemic or the war in ukraine and suddenly we realize how fragile everything that our society is built on has what's your kind of learnings about kind of this the state of our over-reliance or i shouldn't i'm, I'm leading the witness by saying over-reliance <laughs> but our reliance on uh, all these different supply chains what's it taught you yeah, I think that's it's kind of a product of just like modern life is that it's gotten so complex that no nobody even unless you stop to think about it, nobody like realizes how much work goes into all of it. Um, and I think like the supply chain stuff like kind of showed that like there's some cracks in the system and and it can cause a lot of problems. So it's like it's I think it's very useful to keep all of this knowledge alive and accessible while understanding that like we have much better ways of doing this than spending six months growing a sandwich. But if, <laughs> if those processes break down, it's nice to know like how you can kind of fill in the gaps on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Your video didn't convince me that I wanted to build a, like a, a, a water mill in my garden in order to, you know, provide energy for, for, for my house. I mean, it certainly suggests there are better ways of, of doing things. So what's what's next? Do you have um is there obviously you've talked about the camera is there like a end product? Is there is there the kind of final thing that you think would would round off your adventure in this space? Be like if you could, you know, I don't know, build an iPhone from scratch. Um <laughs> or are you just kind of like going to go from one thing to another and see where see where the adventure takes you? Yeah, I mean, the goal is just kind of keep going and like see how far I can get, but kind of the big milestone I've put is uh kind of reaching my own industrial revolution i've been working my way up through different technologies i just built like a water wheel and figuring out how to use that to power different things um so 
getting like an actual steam engine that's up and running, I think it would be like a, a pretty cool milestone, but I definitely would like to keep going past that and see how far I can get. The camera project is definitely like a big just personal goal. I think just like as someone who's creating video content, but like, mm-hmm. I would love to be able to make my own video camera that I can actually film the video with and like my own microphone to record it and like have a video literally made from scratch. Right, right. And in terms of the future of the show, I mean, you've got you've got almost 2 million viewers on YouTube, which seems an unfathomably large number to me. Does that mean you can focus on doing this full time? This is this is your this is your nine to five job? Or, or are you hustling other things too? I don't I don't know how these things how the finances of them work. Yeah, it's pretty much my full time job for the past several years. And uh, has been kind of a fun journey to be able to just dive right into this. And there must have been interest for, for an adaptation for TV at, at this point. Someone must have seen how many people are watching these videos and thought, you know what, that would be a great Nat Geo TV series or whatever. Is that something you're still, you'd still be keen on? I'm definitely open to it. We did, I did end up shooting a, a pilot with the F- Food Network at one point that didn't end up going anywhere, which is just kind of how that TV yeah. industry goes that makes me a little less interested in it just because it's so fickle that I could potentially get like a TV series and maybe run for one year or I could do YouTube and I can just kind of keep doing this for however long I want. And do it how you want to do it and just yeah, exactly. you know, when it's ready, it's ready. Like the chicken sandwich. Yeah. The Ned Ludd Radio Hour is a Podo podcast Welcome. written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The theme music is Internet Song by Apes of the State, who are the sort of apes who probably could make a chicken sandwich, used with their generous permission. The artwork is by Tom Humberston. For socials, go to nedluddlives.com and spread the word. And do, if you like this, go to Apple or Spotify and leave a rating and review, you know, five stars, preferably. If you don't like it, just move on with your lives. Nothing to see here. But yes, that would be helpful. Thank you. Till next week.